So this evening I've been invited to give reflection of a, a desana teaching or whatever you want to call it. But anyway, here I am. And over the past few months I've been in uh, Thailand, as you, most of you know, and this uh, course is a country I am very, very fond of. It gave me every opportunity to um, ordain, practice, and develop uh, in the in a tradition, monastic tradition. And today, of course, I've seen the whole kind of Thailand from 1965 up to the present time, so of 40 years of being in some way connected to that particular country, uh, seeing the kind of enormous changes that have taken place from 1965 up to 2006. So we were invited to, in Bangkok, somebody's, the wealthy people invite us to a dana in their condo, uh, which is in a part of Bangkok where I used to live when I was a lay person, when I was teaching English in uh, Bangkok. <coughs> Uh, it's called Satorn Road. And uh, when I lived there in 1966, there were no high-rise buildings, and, but mainly, and there weren't any high-rise buildings at all in Bangkok. <clears throat> and the Golden Mountain Monastery, Watsaket, was supposed to be the highest point. And the, and the, the story was they weren't supposed to build anything higher than, than Watsaket. Uh, they certainly forgot about that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we're on the 19th floor of this condominium and, and uh, there's these uh, views over the whole city and, and I couldn't recognize one, one, hardly any landmark that I could remember. Uh, they're so, so highly developed now with uh, modern buildings. And seeing this uh, this material development, just in you know, having is a kind of privilege to have to see something like that uh, be part of one's life uh, at this time, my lifespan. I've uh, uh, seen this uh, rapid change from the uh, 
way it used to be to, to a totally kind of new way of looking and experiencing life. <clears throat> and still with all the modernity and material advancement, uh, you know, the, the problems increase for the society. What was, wasn't a problem, say, 40 years ago in Thailand, they've created so many other problems. Because that's uh, the way the world is. The world is a problem, basically. And I think that's important to, to recognize that, that that's, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not criticizing the world or being pessimistic about it, just noting that the, that's the way it is. And if you start observing the world that you create in your own mind, you, you begin to understand that that's the way the world is. When you create yourself as a separate person, as a, an identity uh, with gender or with uh, race, uh, nationality, ethnic background or whatever, then the, you're complicating, the problems increase. So now, in the, say, in the modern world, international uh, world that we live in, where, uh, say, the, the connectedness of, that we're all affecting each other very profoundly in a country like Thailand and, and Britain are not kind of totally separate in distance anymore. The, the uh, Islamic world in the West, in the African and European, American, they're all in some ways uh, affecting each other in all kinds of complicated uh, permutations. And so to see the world as a, as a web, a network, uh, um, it's conventional, it's, it's, it's trying to make order, uh, it's chaotic, it's all the extremes. It's good, bad, right and wrong, beautiful, ugly. Because the conditioned realm is, is like this. So in uh, meditation, the aim then is to, like the pasana, the uh, insight practices of vipassana, or looking into the way it is, is... Uh, we're no longer uh, looking at the qualities of the condition. We're no longer giving our attention and reacting to, to the goodness, badness, the rightness or wrongness, it's the beauty or ugliness of the conditions we're experiencing, but recognizing them as conditions. So this is to, in order to be able to do this, you need to uh, recognize in yourself the ability to, to awaken and observe, to listen and pay attention. It's not an analytical process. It's not a, a judgment. When, you, when we get caught in the world, the complications of the world are all around uh, the conflicts between good and evil, heaven and hell, right and wrong, uh, old age, youth, birth and death, what should be and what shouldn't be, morality and immorality, 
order and chaos and all the rest, peace and war and peace. When we're looking at the world as the world from the position of awareness, then it's, we're no longer judging it. We're no longer uh, putting onto it any value judgment that we might have or feel about what we're experiencing, but recognizing, realizing, all conditions are impermanent. So this is uh, the opportunity we have in, in you know, a monastery like Chithurst. It's, uh, you know, this is our, this, is, this presents an actual physical location uh, where this particular way, kind of development or cultivation is encouraged. Where we try to uh, empower people or encourage people to, uh, to, develop in this way, because without this development, then, of course, we just get caught in the sticky web of the endlessly complicated worldly condition. When you, the main thing is to like look at, at this body and the, and the conditions, the emotions, the, the thoughts, the memories, the feelings that you have. They say on the worldly level, when we look outward at the world and we, we look at all the problems, the uh, economic and political problems of just Britain alone, but now you can't separate Britain from the rest of the world. The social problems, the uh, ethnic problems, the religious problems, now there's all this, you know, the... Uh, the Muslims get very upset when, when the, their religion is insulted or misrepresented in any way. So then we, then uh, there's all, at this time there's all kinds of, of reactions because in Denmark they, they printed some cartoons, uh, kind of uh, very uh, sacrilegious and and tendentious. Um, Portrayals of Mohammed, and this, and for this, then the the Muslim world has been reacting, protesting Danish uh, embassies around the world, <laughs> and then the French have decided they've got to stand up for free speech, and so they print, reprinted the cartoons in French newspapers, and so it goes on and on like this. This gets increasingly more complicated, and then they kind of. You know, what's, what, how far can we carry free speech or a, a religious, uh, you know, do we have the right to, to make fun of other people's religions? And if it's, well, it's my right, I have free speech. You know, people have this, this uh, love for the idea of I can say what I want. And they have a point. And then various religions also, you know, have, uh, feel very uh, encouraged to, or feel uh, compelled to to resist any kind of insults or disparagements. So these are the kind of complicated emotional 
reactions we have just to say, say, say we've been attached or identified with a particular religion. Now, I'm not judging it. I'm not saying, well, I'm not even going to tell you what, what's right or wrong about it. <laughs> but just noticing how, you know, how attachment to conventional world does create this kind of indignation. If what I treasure and value and, and identify with is, is uh, criticized unfairly, made fun of, uh, then then uh, I, when, when that happens, then my emotional reactions are like this. So I say, being a Theravadan Buddhist, being, having spent, being trained in Thailand, the Thai forest tradition. And, you know, I do have a Western perspective on it. I don't, I don't have the kind of, uh, you know, I can appreciate the Western sectarian attitude of free speech. Not that I don't, uh, you know, I have no connection with that one either. But the important thing in, in terms of, of uh, practicing, of developing, is to get beyond just the blind attachment even to the best, best conditions, even the best religion, or the truest, or the most right, or superior. These are all value judgments, aren't they? They say, whose religion is the best? And what is superior or inferior, and then, then we have various opinions, or we we may have the a more magnanimous approach. They're all equal, all pointing at the same thing: at liberation, freedom, immortality, and that's that's the kind of grand, magnanimous view. And then we might emotionally have that's very intellectual. Then. Uh, Emotionally, we, we might, well, you know, Theravada, really, it's the most direct and it's pure teaching from the Buddha and, and we can go on and justify our own preference. And watch this in yourself, the way one, one wants to justify or defend, say, being a monk or a nun or a Theravadan Buddhist or whatever. Just observing, not saying there's anything wrong right or wrong about it, but noticing. This way then is, is awareness. It's uh, sati sampachanya in Pali, or sati panya, mindfulness, wisdom, apperception. It's a natural ability that every human being has before we become anything, we be, before we separate into I am this body, I am this personality. So when we attach even to, to a very, the finest ideals, we can get very indignant and very upset and very angry and abusive and wanting to avenge, wanting to 
set the, make the other person suffer for their um, insulting behavior towards us, uh, wanting to make everything right, to to get it right so that that we're treated properly. These kind of ideals are still uh, the world, wanting to to make everything better, wanting to make everything fair and just as it should be according to the ideal. But then when you're looking at the reality of this moment, this moment sitting here in this high seat in front of you is like this. And this is not an ideal. It's the way it is. An ideal would be maybe, you know, if, if I, you know, could influence everybody, waken all humanity to their true nature so that everyone within the next week would become uh, a completely enlightened arahant and all the ethnic problems and that would dissolve into nothingness and we live harmoniously uh, with wisdom, compassion, and joy, and fairness. And, what, and uh, that would be an ideal. So the ideal one can only feel slightly cynical towards, you know, at least at my stage of life. Because I know that's not going to happen. But pointing to an ideal where you can carry something off into it to the most kind of uh, exalted possibilities. But the reality of this moment is like this. So then I observe the way it is at this, this very moment here and now. Because this is what is within, this is what I can do. I can't make I can't make a force or compel humanity to fit into the ideal, even though it's probably the most wonderful ideal that it'd be good for absolutely all of us. <laughs> it's the best, but this is the way it is, and this is not a a cynical resignation. Uh, into a kind of fatalistic attitude, but a recognition uh, that that salvation, liberation, freedom lies always here and now through this simple attentiveness, awareness. And that one can't expect others or demand others to do this because this is something that that once you recognize or realize the value of this, then you, the only possibility is to, is to develop, to cultivate this awareness. Now in um, my journeys, do. In this past last year, I've had opportunity to 
to visit where Seattle, where I was born and grew up, and Berkeley, San Francisco, back to Thailand, where I ordained. Um, went to a funeral in uh, uh, one of the uh, chief disciples of Lung Po Cha, Ajahn Mahasupong, died last year, and they had his funeral in uh, December. So I went to that, and we went to a place on the Cambodian border in uh, in that part of northeast Thailand. Uh, there's uh, Sisiket province and Ubon province uh, are on the Cambodian border. So then we drove from Wat Chat uh, in Ubon, and it took an hour, just an hour to drive in a very smart van with uh, leather upholstery and air conditioning on good roads all the way down to the Cambodian border to this Amper Gantanarak where this branch monastery was established that uh, Ajahn Mahasupong, it was his uh, monastery. So then, this going back to a place that you've been before, I remember when I first went to this, this very same place uh, 40 years ago. Because when I became a bhikkhu and went to stay with Ajahn Chah, that very year, 1967, he, uh, he was given this, this land in this place in, in a southern Sisiket province near the Cambodian border to establish a branch monastery. At that time, there were, there were only three branch monasteries uh, in 1967. There was the main monastery, Wat Pa Pong, and then there were three others, small branches. And then this was the fourth branch. And, of course, it was in those days, in the 60s, the borders of Thailand were still very undeveloped. And so this uh, area was just like all, like jungly and and um, the roads were very, very, uh, were, just, were unpaved. And and to get there, you had to, it took all kinds of, it took hours to get from from Uborn to this Amper Gantanarak. And I remember sitting there and we spent several nights in this place and, it, and of course there were no buildings or anything, they were just kind of temporary structures and platforms. And we were sitting out in this, uh, and it was the rainy season, so it was, everything was wet and moldy and, the, and the, it's a very fertile area that has huge mosquitoes. And uh, sitting there, in this heat, in this sweat, sweaty feeling and heat, and um, and these huge mosquitoes, kind of stopping, trying to stop them from biting, or whatever they do, and uh, sitting in this in the in this jungly, in this jungle place with uh, with Ajahn Chah and all the uh, village people had gathered, and they were all, of course, having quite a good time. And I couldn't understand anything they were saying. 
And I remember sitting there uh, thinking, this is the most horrible place in the world. <laughs> it's like, you know, in those movies about green hells where, where they send you as a prisoner to some horrible place sticky, jungly, sweaty place with big mosquitoes. This was like, this is what it was like for me at that time. And so then going there this time, this whole area has been developed. So Umper Gantanalak is quite a, a big town now and the, and the monastery it has nice buildings and, uh, you know, proper sala and Uposata Hall and Kutis, and then they've been given land outside uh, the, the monastery itself where Ajahn Liam has, is developing into a kind of Buddhist park so that um, in, in memory of Ajahn Mahasupong. So they, they spent the previous month, months uh, building this uh, kind of structure, a kind of Jedi-like structure and then they were, uh, with the idea that they were going to cast uh, a Buddha Rupa, one of these kind of walking Buddha Rupas, huge one, in bronze, and put it on top of this stupa. But what they had temporarily was a kind of uh, pink um, lotus bud dome over this duck. So it looked like a kind of Russian Orthodox <laughs> church, actually, with a pink dome, and uh, <laughs> it was rather pretty. And then, and then the then all the uh, the big funeral that Ajahn Liam, the head monk of Wat Bapong, had had uh, arranged. Uh, so he, Ajahn Mahasapong, was very highly regarded. So. All the monks that I trained with over the years in Thailand were attending this funeral. And I, then it would bring back memories of when we were all together 40 years before at Wat Papong. We were all considerably younger, 40 years younger. <laughs> and they were, they were in their 20s, most of the monks. And I was about 33. And... Uh, now we're all quite old and and uh, walk. They uh, don't quite have that that youthful vigor and in our walk anymore. And we shuffle along. <laughs> but the power of memory of you know what we remember of Gantanarak. Uh, Forty years ago, I can still remember that, even I'm sitting here, because memory is like that, isn't it? It's something impresses you from past experience; it becomes memory. So that's the way it is. A memory in the present is like this. So the just the memory remembering Ampergantanalak. You know, it's a way of training, observing what, what memory, how it affects you. You know, the, the memory of it is a green hell, a jungly hell. And then, then now the memory is one of a Buddhist park. 
and a very happy memory because it was a very uh, beautiful funeral. How do your memories affect you? You know, so you remember something pleasant or unpleasant. We had this uh, World Abbots meeting. Uh, and I found this rather a uh, humorous title, World Abbots Meeting. It's slightly tongue-in-cheek, I think. I think Ajahn Saji, he likes these acronyms because it comes out WHAM. <coughs> which always has a kind of, like being slapped in the face. <laughs> Because the memories of previous WAM meetings are quite unpleasant, actually. <clears throat> the first WAM meeting, I was really slapped in the face. And so the first WAM meeting was at Wat Nana Chat, and uh, 90 in 1990, at Ajahn Chah's funeral, after Ajahn Chah's cremation. So, so then the the second one was at Amravati. When was that? About five, four years ago, five years ago. And that wasn't that was that wasn't quite so heavy, but it it wasn't particularly pleasant memory either. So these are memories. So, so before this wham meeting took place again at Wat Chat this this year, um, early January. The, uh, they say, are you going to the WAM? And I, and then they, of course, bring back memories of the first WAM and the second WAM. <laughs> and so then this uh, sense of, you know, feeling dutiful, uh, you know, I, I, I have to go to these kind of things, I should go to these kind of things. And then also, uh, feeling, uh, you know, having to put up with something or confront something, I, you know, or be slapped in the face again, wham, for the third time. But in reflecting on this, this is, these are just memories, aren't they? So, so something like wham can be you know, suddenly take on a significance that it, it, you know, it wouldn't have for most people. So somebody said to you, are you attending the WAM? You think, well, what's he talking about? But if you said, did you attend the WAM? I, I knew, I'd know. <laughs> I definitely have a, a, a certain feeling that would arise from that, from that word, WAM. But this, the third wham was quite pleasant meeting actually. So I have, I have a happy memory. So it, it was quite good to see all the different, uh, from different branches uh, in uh, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, US, from Britain and uh, from uh, Switzerland and Italy. And from uh, the where the Western branch monastery is in Thailand, so there were about twenty or so of us, and even one from uh, 
Penang from Malaysia. So uh, we spent three days, and uh, it was nice, to, a very pleasant kind of meeting. And uh, um, I think we, you know, all matured considerably, offered benefiting from our investment in the holy life, because our way of relating to each other is definitely m much more, you know, uh, pleasant and uh, useful than, say, the previous two experiences. So now I have the third wham, which is, brings back pleasant memories. So the fourth, fourth wham will take place in 2008 in, in Western Australia. So I can create a problem around that or not. You know, it's up to me really what, how I want to relate to that because that's in the future. That's not a memory. That's uh, something that will happen Three years, two years, isn't it? <clears throat> Last uh, July, uh, I was in, uh, went to Seattle, and we visited the the two places that I lived in there when I was from one to six in one house, and then from six to seventeen in another. And both these houses had been been demolished and the, the uh, building areas now. Seattle become very kind of smart city. It wasn't when I lived there. It's like backwater of the United States. You're kind of embarrassed. And they went, I remember going to New York City and people asking me where I'm from, say, Seattle, because I feel, uh, you know, that, that we were we were looked at as kind of... Uh, country cousins, uh, backward, a bit backward. And uh, uh, even though Seattle was always a, quite a, you know, a modern city, um, it was in a rather remote place, the northwestern part of the United States. But now it's become very wealthy and it's very beautiful, very modern, <clears throat> very desirable place. But I've noticed just by observing these, the areas where these two houses, I could remember in the first place, the first house that doesn't exist anymore, but where it used to, I could still, the memories would come back of just a certain place, place the, the, the pavement outside the house or various other things in the landscape. Memories that come back that I hadn't remembered from 60 years or so. So, over 60 years. So that this is uh, just observing, because I'm quite interested in memory, in how memory affects consciousness. And, uh, and how, especially when you're my age, you do, you, you, you have a lot of memories coming back from, from your life that you've lived. Because memory is very much a, what the world is all about. It's all a memory. We have to remember this is, this is, this is England. This is Chithurst. This is, this is like this and this is like that. A language and, 
and so forth. It's all about memory, being able to remember, conditioning the mind to, to hold on to perceptions, memories, views, opinions, and how these different memories, different views, different words affect our consciousness. So this we can actually observe how a memory, we're not trying to get rid of memory or to deny it or to judge it, but to recognize memory is like this. It's um, it's sankara, it's uh, anicca, it's impermanent, it's anatta, it's not self. So even a memory, uh, I was, I grew up in this place, is is a memory, and it's anatta. It's not a, it's not a personal reality, because it's seen in terms of dhamma rather than in terms of personal attachment that is based on ignorance. So this is called awakening, waking up to the way it is. In uh, the Buddhist terminologies, then, this, the, the, the Buddha knows the Namma. So this, this way of knowing is, a, is, is the Buddha, the conscious awareness, ability that each one of us has to be, to be aware and to observe, it's discerning, it's a discerning function rather than uh, a critical one. Now some people, we've all had suffered a lot because we, are, we have developed our critical faculties to a very high level. <clears throat> so in terms of, you know, like being a monk, for example, a Buddhist monk, uh, one can take monastic conventions and identify with them very much and then uh, could be very critical of other monks, of other traditions, uh, or of oneself. Because according to the ideal, the ideal Buddhist monk is one who practices hard, uh, obeys all the rules, uh, is not greedy, is content and grateful with the requisites and uh, so on like this. So this is, this is the ideal monk, bhikkhu, in other words. <clears throat> but then, then we can become very critical of ourselves because we may not at, at this particular moment have, be anywhere near this ideal. So this is where, you know, this investigation or looking into the way it is is, <clears throat> is, the, not, is the way of liberation. Not trying to live up to ideals and try to control and force things into ideal forms, but to use form for reflection, for observing the way it is as we experience life and in, uh, from the, the way we are, the way we react, the kind of emotional uh, quality we're experiencing, the state of our, our health in this present, uh, this present moment. So when we talk about the way it is, this, this, uh, this 
this, this is a reflective statement, helps, helps us to observe, because it's not saying how it should be, but how it actually is, the way it is at this moment, is like this. As you awaken to just the, the experience of having a physical body in the present moment, it's like this. So you're, you're, you begin to open to, say, the, the levels of energy or, or pressure or feeling that you're experiencing in, in your body at this very present moment. Uh, the way certain conditions will affect consciousness. So pe- people praise. Some, somebody praises you. You feel like this. People are criticizing you, giving you a wham. It's like this. The way it is. So the way it is is not a kind of passive resignation uh, as some kind of fatalistic attitude, but it's a reflection. So you can observe the way the conditioned realm affects consciousness from this particular position of being incarnated in this particular form at this very moment. It's like this. So many people suffer a lot because of of fear. We, we live in a realm where fear is a very kind of primal experience. And uh, it is, um, you know, it's a, this is a, a fear realm that we're experiencing. The sense realm, the planet Earth, the, the universal system that we're experiencing at this time is in itself quite frightening. Because from the position that we're in, as one uh, little human being, uh, looking out into the vast universe around us and into the, you know, the the society and the and all the problems and and memories and attitudes and uh, possibilities that exist for us to experience pleasure and pain. We also recognize that, that having a physical body is, is quite frightening because it's so easily harmed, hurt. It's, it's uh, such a kind of unrelenting source of irritation. So in terms of, of uh, having human body, it's like this. It's, it's, it's uh, basically the experience of being continually irritated from birth to death. And so this is the way it is. It's, uh, it's not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, unless you want to blame God or, you know, put the blame on somebody like that. But uh, that doesn't help at all uh, it, towards liberation. What does help is, to, is your willingness to learn from the way it is. See it as an opportunity, as challenge, as 
this this lifetime as a human individual within the human form that we're experiencing at this time, the way it is, we're not saying how it should be, but the way it is at this very moment, the age, the health, the the uh, state it's in is like this. This way of bringing into consciousness, this, this is a transcending, actually, this allows us to put the physical form that we're experiencing as an, as an object in consciousness rather than letting it just merely be a source of, of habitual irritation that we react to endlessly till we die. So with awareness, we, we begin like with observing the, having a physical body, the sitting, standing, walking, lying down postures, the breathing, the pressures, the, the sensitivity, it's pleasure, pleasurable, painful, neutral sensation. Observing it rather than trying to just uh, ignore it or judge it, criticize it, blame somebody for for its uh, unpleasantness, take it personally, identify with it. So awareness allows is the is the option we have. It's through this this uh, ability to pay attention, observe, notice the way it is, that we begin to free ourselves from just blindly reacting to the pleasure, to the pressure, uh, pleasure, pain, uh, whatever feelings and state that our body and bodily condition might be. Uh, experiencing at this very moment. Well, that same thing applies to the emotional conditioning. Like we, we, uh, we have, we, our emotions are conditioned. So we, we, we have love and hate, like and dislike, and so forth, and and we have uh, fear. Uh, anger, greed, lust, envy, jealousy, resentment, all these different emotional qualities we can observe. They are the way they are. They, the greed is like this or anger is like this. Fear. We can observe fear when we feel this sense of being threatened or frightened or worried. When we worry about the future, there was a, a monk in Bangkok who was very keen on this. Uh, uh, he's reading all these books and uh, going into these websites around the uh, oil crisis. So he had these 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 books that I I read on the oil crisis. And it was, the, this, this kind of information is so distressing. <laughs> you read that? that uh, after a while I decided I don't want to read these books. <laughs> because just, 
just that kind of information about what's the you know the the total collapse of the economy in, in the near future. In fact, he's expecting it any time. Could be tomorrow. They, <laughs> they, uh, you know this. You know, one can observe this. How this is. You know, you're 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 reading in this book about possibilities for the future, or even certainties, whatever, and how they affect consciousness. So, it, it, you know, one could worry and uh, also dread or expect. These are the kind of uh, emotions one might project after reading such literature and kind of worry. What's going to happen to Chitterst in an oil crisis? Amravati. Well, you know, we won't be able to even fly to Western Australia in 19, in 2008 because there won't be enough, uh, airfares will be too expensive or something like that. These are the possibilities of, of uh, you know, anguish or despair that we can create just by what we're reading. No, it's not to discount what we're reading or to to, you know, to deny its importance or whatever, but to recognize how, what we put into consciousness, what, how, what we, what we read, what we, uh, take on and experience creates this kind of emotion. I found like reading that material created this kind of dread of the future. Dread is like this, or worry. Anxiety. And yet I was reading this in a very nice place in Bangkok, air-conditioned townhouse, <laughs> with people, you know, lovely Thai people congregated there presenting the most uh, wonderful cuisine for us alms mendicants <laughs> to put into our begging bowls. <laughs> <laughs> and so one can reflect on the immediacy of the kind of goodness of the moment or spend the day worrying about the future. Well, it's not a matter of, you know, of trying to avoid uh, consideration for the future. But what I'm pointing at is, is uh, trusting in the awareness to observe how things do affect consciousness. Such as the wham, the word wham, which before this this word uh, was used for a world abbot's meeting, you know, was just a kind of a slang term. Wham, bam, alakazam. <laughs> it's kind of a jokey word, and uh, uh, it, you know, it didn't have it didn't have great impact on the consciousness. But then once you associate it with the, with the memory of something, you know, meetings where monks get together and uh, confront each other, criticize each other and so forth in very aggressive ways and then the wham becomes, the word W-A-M becomes, um, has a stronger effect when, the, when, that, when that's mentioned. 
Now that's just noticing how it is. I mean, from the way I am, the way it affects me, how words, how memories affect consciousness. How going back to the, the first house, the first place I lived in for six years of my life, memories would arise. Now, if I took you there, you wouldn't. You you wouldn't have any. You see, you you might form a memory at the time, but you wouldn't have no memory of the place like I would. Then re- remembering who you are, like like uh, the self you. Now in Thailand, I'm. I'm quite well known in Thailand. I'm quite famous in Thailand, and so, and I have uh, uh, this title, uh, so I'm quite high up in terms of you know the position I hold in Thai Buddhism. So this is, this uh, these are, these are titles that have been given to me, not that I've sought them, but then being Ajahn or being uh, Tanjau Kun or these these. These are Thai ways of addressing, conveying kind of like teaching positions or, or high ranks. Now these, you know, you say Tanjau Kun in Thailand, it means something. Here, you say Tanjau Kun, you wouldn't know what it is, would you? Most of you wouldn't have a clue. And then you say, then somebody informs you, you know, you say, Ajahn Sumedho is a Tanjau Kun. And then you say it with with kind of something, this is very important. He is not just Ajahn Sumedho, not just an ordinary Ajahn. He's Tanjau Kun. (laughs) And even though you you might not have a clue of what that means, you know that it's, I'm special, you know, I'm above Ajahn Karuniko. (laughs) <laughs> so this is uh, this is how titles affect consciousness it's observing it like being an American when I first coming came to England you know somebody was a lord you know like like we had Lord Young Michael Young as one of the trustees when I first met Michael Young, Lord Young, you know, Lord. This was, this you know, for an American, we don't have lords in America. So, Lord, a Lord, we have a Lord on it, a trustee, a Lord. And so the mind builds up to this, somebody really significant and important. But then, when you meet Lord Young, he's, <laughs> you know, when you get to know him as a, a on a personal level, uh, you know that sense of that sense of awe uh, that that goes with the title uh, doesn't always operate. So just noticing how 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 you know how these these things do affect us, and how we we create ourselves. Just like thinking of yourself as superior or inferior, like. The other day I had a memory of somebody years and years ago when I was in the military who a, a friend 
a best friend I had in the Navy, who I always felt he was much superior to me. I always felt inferior. I haven't seen him for 50 years or so. <laughs> but the memory, I was just noticing just the memory of this one person that I hadn't seen since we were about 23, 22 years old. Uh, <laughs> how that memory of this one person brought back this feeling of me being in, uh, not quite as good or inferior. Just noticing that, how that that particular memory uh, still brought back that feeling. Now, it wasn't an unpleasant feeling. It wasn't like I resented. It didn't bring up resentment uh, of, you know, the, of inferiority, but just noticing that how the the memory of this one person that I hadn't seen for 50 years would would bring up this, you know, would I could began to notice the actual feeling of it, and just by recognizing this, how we, you know, when you think of somebody, how the whether you think of them as, you know, you you feel inferior or they're better or more gifted or more good looking or more intelligent or it might, or I can think of people who I feel superior to. Get, or then you know, I think of people, you know, then, then they, then we're all the same, you know, there's no superiority, inferiority. That's, that's the ideal maybe of, you know, but usually relationships bring up this sense of, of uh, superiority, inferiority. And to note, there's nothing wrong uh, with this. I keep repeating. It's not a judgment, but just an observation. It's like this. Because superior, inferior are feelings that we create. It's the world. It's about the way we, you know, how, how we, you know, if we attach to these particular memories or these particular ideals or values or principles or standards then there's always this, this kind of discrimination as a part of that experience of being superior, inferior, or the same. Because the conditioned world is like that, isn't it? It is. It's beautiful and ugly, right and wrong, good and bad, uh, superior, inferior, equal, it's fair, it's unfair, <clears throat> There's justice and there's injustice. So then the relationship to the conditioned realm is one of knowing it rather than of attaching and identifying with it. When you know the world, as the world, then you can let go of it. It's not, you don't destroy it and you're not, it's not an act of, of denial or, or revenge or annihilation. But no longer do you need the world to, uh, you know, you, you can let it go. You can allow yourself that freedom from this, this uh, insidious conditioning from the limitation 
uh, the burdens we create by our attachment, our blind attachments to the conditioned world, the conditioned realm, to the bodies we have, to the memories that we have, to the emotional habits that we have. But that, and the, then the only possible way that this, the only way that this is possible then is through this awareness. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening.